0: Hi guys welcome back so glad you're here for this vet Folio voice episode sponsored by decra and featuring dr patty lathan in this episode dr lathan and i discuss addison's disease a disease that is pretty uncommon but when identified can be life-saving and very rewarding to treat and if you need an update on how to treat it dr lathan is here for you do you want to hear something ironic The day after we recorded this episode, one of my patients who is an Addisonian showed up, I'm talking fully lateral, in the lobby of my clinic. It turned out she had a pretty impressive foreign body at the root of her symptoms, but I was able to use a lot of what Dr. Lathan talked about here in the acute management of her symptoms so we could get her into surgery safely where one of my colleagues took over and did an absolutely beautiful job taking care of this girl. So I hope this refresher is just as useful for you guys and we can all get out there and save some lives. Patty Lathan is an associate professor of small animal internal medicine at Mississippi State University. Her primary interest is endocrinology, specifically the management of adrenal disease and diabetes mellitus. She's published articles and book chapters, given lectures throughout the United States and internationally, and currently serves as the president for the Society for Comparative Endocrinology. Her students also publish educational endocrine music videos as an assignment for her elective, and those videos can be viewed on her YouTube channel, which I have seen several of them, and they're fantastic, highly recommend. But anyway, let's go ahead and get into our episode. Patty, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you all for having me. I am always happy to talk about Addison's disease.
0: Well, let's just jump right in. Addison's, I mean, just in general, it can be really difficult to diagnose. I know in school, they refer to it oftentimes as the great pretender. So what are some of the clues that we can look for on presentation that tell us we might be looking at an Addisonian?
1: Yeah, it can be the great pretender. I mean, <laughs> some of the most specific signs that these animals present with are vomiting and diarrhea and lethargy and just overall ADR. So that throws a lot of people off. And I can tell you the first ones I ever diagnosed, I was not really going down that route until I got blood work back. The biggest thing I think everybody is kind of aware of now to note on blood work is the hyperkalemia and hyponatremia. When the potassium's high and or the sodium is low, you should have Addison's kind of running through the back of your mind. Of course, there are other things that cause that as well, but a really high potassium coupled with GI signs should really trigger your thoughts towards Addison's. I've taken some consult calls from vets in the past where they call with dogs that that they think are in acute kidney injury or experience acute kidney injury, and they've got the hyperkalemia, they've got the hyponatremia, and they're severely azotemic. I mean, I've seen creatinines of five plus and BUNs of greater than 120 in some of these dogs. And we talked through it and it turns out that, yes, they're hyperkalemic, hyponatremic and azotemic. So that fits with renal failure. But if they're that hyperkalemic, typically it's going to be aneuric or oliguric renal failure causing the hyperkalemia. Meaning that if you have a patient that presents and they're producing a large amount of urine or a normal amount of urine, along with the hyperkalemia and azotemia, it's unlikely that that's caused by renal disease. And sometimes we will have patients that come in and they are hyperkalemic, hyponatremic, azotemic, and they're not producing a lot of urine at that point. But these are the patients who come in in hypovolemic shock. So it's what we call physiologic oligurious. So... It's not that they can't produce urine, it's that their kidneys are realizing how dehydrated and hypovolemic they are, so they're saving all of the fluids and not urinating. But once you rehydrate these patients, man, they start producing urine out the wazoo, and they also actually respond to treatment much faster than, in my experience, AKIs do. I mean, half an hour after we rehydrate some of these animals, they, the, a dog that came in on a gurney, maybe we may be able to take them outside to on a walk where they urinate. So those are some of the biggest changes we see.
0: Azotemia, hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, vomiting, diarrhea, the, the, specific vomiting and diarrhea. Yes. <laughs> so what about, um, absolutely. Absolutely. What about on a CBC, any changes there that we should be aware of?
1: we talk about a reverse stress leukogram or lack of a stress leukogram, which, you know, under the influence of cortisol, of course, your neutrophils often go up and your lymphocytes go down. So a reverse stress leukogram would be with this, if the neutrophils are low and the lymphocytes are high. Now saying that makes me suspicious of Addison's, but you don't actually see a reverse stress leukogram very often, more often than not. You'll see it where you have a really stressed out animal, an animal that is in hypovolemic shock or really sick, and you'd expect to have a stress leukogram, but their neutrophils are right smack dab in the middle, and their lymphocytes are not low. Actually, there was one study that said that if the lymphocyte count was less than 750, it was super unlikely to be Addisonian. The other thing that we'll see in some of these patients is an astronomically increased eosinophil count of course, steroids will decrease eosinophils, but lack of steroids has also resulted in some pretty significantly high eosinophils. Now, sometimes we'll only see, you know, they'll, they'll be in the reference range or they'll be a little bit above the reference range, but I've seen some with 3,000 eosinophils up to seven or 8,000 to the point where I was convinced there was some other disease go, process going on. But then when I treated the Addisons, the dog actually got better. And of course. I'm in Mississippi. So we see high eosinophil counts. And the first thing we're thinking is some kind of parasites, but these are pretty high eosinophil counts.
0: I can relate to that. We, we oftentimes see high eosinophil counts on our blood work here in Florida as well. Mm. One of the things that I came across last week was interpreting blood work from a Kushnoi dog who is being regulated on veteral. And that potassium was kind of creeping up a little bit too. And it was actually one of the other doctors that was working. She was looking at the blood work and trying to figure out what was going on with this patient because she hadn't seen him in a long time. And all she had in front of her was the blood work that they had come in for. And she noted that potassium creeping up. So is that another area where we should really be keeping an eye on those electrolytes, the eosinophils, everything like that are on these Kushnoid dogs that are being regulated with
1: federal? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Trilostane does, or veteral does uh, decrease aldosterone concentrations in dogs in addition to the cortisol, but it generally decreases the cortisol even more. Usually when they're on trilistane, their potassium stays within reference range, but sometimes it can go up. Normally, I would say it doesn't go above 6, 6.5, somewhere in there. But it is something I pay attention to specifically if I have a dog that's on an ACE inhibitor or aldosterone receptor blocker. If they're on either one of those classes of drugs, then we'll see the potassium go up a little bit more. I've had to decrease the ACE inhibitor dose in some patients that have been on concurrent ACE inhibitors and trilostane. You know, I'm comfortable if it's slowly gone up between 6 and 6.5, leaving it, at that trylistaine at that dose but when i start getting close to 7 especially if it happens after the first 2 to 4 weeks that i've put the dog on trylistaine then i get really nervous but if it's just hanging out at 6.6 and it has been for a year i'm not going to panic about it so it is something to watch but we don't typically see major issues from it
0: okay all right awesome thank you for that one i was really curious about that blood work interpretation sure Now, let's make it even more fun and talk about atypical Addison's. So, Mm -hmm. that diagnosis can be even more difficult. And I can tell you a story about some personal experience with that and a staff member's dog. But, any tips on kind of sniffing these guys out?
1: Man, atypical Addisonians are tough. And, you know, we will see some patients here where Addison's isn't really high on the radar. And then for something on blood work pops up, say the albumin's low or the acinophils are high. And we're like, huh, that's kind of odd. I wonder what's going on. Let's check a baseline cortisol and everybody kind of laughs at me. And then we check it and it's low. And we're like, huh, maybe that does dog does have Addison's. But most frustratingly with the atypicals, sometimes the most common or the most common signs associated with it are going to be vomiting, diarrhea, maybe some melana, maybe hematokiesia. That just really non-specific signs. And we've seen certainly seen a lot of them where they came in potentially for an IBD workup. In order to work up the IBD, we were going to end up doing endoscopy or full thickness biopsies, both of which require anesthesia. So we're like, let's just make sure that the dog doesn't have atypical and we're going to check a baseline cortisol. So first off, I'll say atypicals can be kind of frustrating, but also some of the most rewarding ones because Once we diagnose them, all we got to do is treat them with prednisone and hope that the electrolytes don't go off later. But I'm thinking blood work abnormalities associated with atypical, they're kind of strange. So low albumin just probably due to GI blood loss or sorry, either GI blood loss or just loss of albumin through the GI tract from vomiting and diarrhea. You can also see a low cholesterol in these animals, which you know, low cholesterol is kind of difficult because it's not something that most makes most people even really question it. It's like, ah, oh, it's a low cholesterol, unless I'm worried about liver disease, not really thinking about it. But some of our Addisonians do have low cholesterols, and that's a reason to kind of trigger your thoughts uh, towards Addison's. Other abnormalities on blood work, we already talked about the reverse stress leukogram, the fill count, some of these atypicals, going back to the chemistry, some of these atypicals can also have and. Increase BUN and creatinine, but it's not usually as bad as the typicals because the reasons the ones with regular Addisons generally are azotemic is from a bad, bad pre renal azotemia. One thing I did miss when I was talking about that is that these animals come in with the, when the regular Addisonians come in with the electrolyte abnormalities and severe azotemia, it's typically going to be pre renal. So the great thing about them is you treat them and the azotemia resolves. I have had questions about that before. It's not concurrent kidney disease and Addison's. But in any case, going back to the atypicals, sorry, jumping around. But with the atypicals, they can be a little bit azotemic. We did have one dog. Oh, this was a scary dog. It was a dog whose vet was trying to get the dog, the owners, to bring the dog in to see us for a while. And of course, when they got here, they said, oh, no, 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 nobody told us to come in, which I found out <laughs> later it was absolutely not the case. Because one of our students actually worked at the vet clinic that was trying to send it in. Anyway, so the people brought in this poodle who'd been lethargic, and then the PCV had been dropping over time, and by the time the dog came in to see us, the dog was on a gurney. Well, it was a like a five-year-old standard poodle, so of course, my alarm bells for Addison's were ringing, but I remember checking blood work and going, oh, that's weird, because we checked in um, Nova real quick. Sodium, potassium were normal. Actually, potassium was a little low from the diarrhea, The dog's PCV was maybe 8%. The dog had bled out of his GI tract, but the BUN was high. The dog had been bleeding out the GI tract. So this was an atypical Addisonian, we later found out, an atypical Addisonian who bled out the GI tract and had normal sodium and potassium. And, you know, those are scary because you're, you know, some if you have on a Saturday night, a dog comes in with a high potassium, a low sodium, and it's a poodle and is vomiting and di- has diarrhea, you may do the STEM, but you're probably not going to get the STEM results back till Monday. But you're looking at that d- dog going, okay, hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, clinical signs, signalment. I'm going to go ahead and give dexamethasone now because right. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. But a dog that's bleeding out the GI tract, you're not going to just go with your gut and say, hey, let me give some steroids to this dog who has bad, bad melena. So with this particular dog, it was really the signalment and the fact that the dog had GI blood loss, which happens with Addisonian. Sometimes for whatever, sometimes for whatever reason, probably do. I mean, the best we can say, decreased trophic effect of steroids in the GI tract, which means we don't really know exactly why it happens. But these animals, both typical and atypical, can bleed out of their GI tracts. And this particular dog actually got to us too late. We were pushing blood into the dog, plus pushing fluids into the dog. The dog arrested. We got the dog back, but then unfortunately, the dog arrested again and didn't make it. So, and then necropsy, we found out that the dog actually on the adrenals, the two inner layers of the adrenals, the fasciculata and reticulars, which make cortisol, those had been atrophied. So, those were no longer there, obviously not making cortisol, but the outer layer of the adrenal cortex, the glomerulosa, which makes aldosterone, that was actually intact. So even okay. though I never, I never stem the dog, but obviously the dog was an atypical Addisonian. So I can't even remember what the question was there, but <laughs> we see, we see a lot of things with atypical Addison's, but vomiting, diarrhea, bleeding out the GI tract is one thing. I definitely want people to remember.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, that makes sense with what you're saying, like bad melanin and the high BUN and the 8% PCV. But my mind also went a little bit to like, is it an immune mediated something going on with a PCB of eight, but same, same conundrum, right? Like the dog has horrible melana and it's like, do I give steroids? And it sounds like, you know, like you said, this guy just got there too late.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we see plenty of dogs that have ITP, so they're not making any platelets. Their platelet counts zero. They bleed out of the GI tract. So they don't have a primary IMHA, but it's a primary ITP. But yet, how do you treat itp with steroids and then we have discussions of well we should probably give them gi protectants and then go back and forth on that but
0: right right exactly but with a PCV of eight you know bleeding out in front of you that becomes a little bit more more difficult scary i don't remember what the question was either but you had me on the edge of my seat with that story
1: (laughs) it was a sad story and it's just one of those patients i will never ever forget
0: Oh gosh. Um, that is way more dramatic than my atypical Addisonian, which was a staff member's dog. And this dog was like, I mean, she was pretty much okay. She would just have these like periods of time where mom would just say, you know, she's just not right. She's just not right. And blood work was pretty unremarkable. It was pretty boring. She had allergic skin disease. So like the eosinophils weren't a huge alarm bell, And, you know, there was really, there wasn't azotemia, there wasn't vomiting, there wasn't diarrhea. It was just, she just kind of was lethargic and just kind of off. And this uh, dog was owned by a vet student and she ended up talking to, uh, yeah, of course, um, Dr. Cher at at UF. And he was, and I think it was the cholesterol. I think he's like, that's kind of a low albumin, kind of a low cholesterol. And sure enough, she was an atypical Addisonian. And my only thing that like makes me feel a little bit better about that case is I wasn't the only one who missed it. (laughs) but she was a tough one.
1: They're tough. Dr. Cher, from what I remember, he was on at least one or two of the earlier papers on Addison. So he's pretty brilliant about it. We did have a recent, another one recently that uh, came in to see us. Actually, it came in to see my colleagues. The dog came in for some regurgitation. It was a young Labrador. Regurgitation and hiccuping. Huh. And there wasn't anything abnormal on blood work. I remember looking at the blood work, trying to figure out whether something would have been missed. Cause I remember looking at it going, "Ah, eh, probably not Addison. All the blood works normal. So they did a baseline cortisol. It was less than one. So of course, when you get a less than one, you got to stim it and they stimmed it and it was less than one. So, huh. you know, we associate mega esophagus and some regurg with atypical Addisons. But again, up until this dog, every other dog I've ever seen had something abnormal on blood work, but- they treated this dog with prednisone and the dog was magically better. It is just crazy what you'll see. So, you know, on one hand, I some people may think that I check baseline cortisols a little bit too often, but then I hit these dogs. And even if I only get a hit in one out of a hundred dogs, we have saved the life of that particular dog.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Don't be stingy with your baseline cortisols.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: So once we do suspect Addison's, let's talk about getting to a definitive diagnosis and what kind of considerations we should keep in mind when we're trying to diagnose Addison's.
1: Yeah. So in the end, at this point, I would say the only definitive way to diagnose Addison's is going to be to do an ACTH stimulation test. There are some other things out there that people looked at, but we need to have more studies evaluating those other things in recent papers before we latch onto them. So right now, we need to do an ACTH simulation test to diagnose Addison's. The great thing is that there was a recent study, and by recent, I want to say in the last few years, that looked at even lower doses of cosentropin to use for Diagnosing Addison's. We came out with a paper, I think in like 2008 using five microgram per kilogram, but a group down at Auburn came out with the dose of one microgram per kilogram being effective for differentiating Addisonian dogs from non-Addisonian dogs. And of course, the reason we want to use low dose of cosentropin isn't because cosentropin hurts a dog. You know, you can use a whole vial in any dog that you want and the whole vial is 250 micrograms it's not going to hurt the dog, but you're going to save yourself a lot of money or save the clients a lot of money by using one microgram per kilogram. So that said, remember it's, it comes in a 250 microgram vial. I don't usually use less than 10 micrograms on other dogs, just on any dog, even if it's a five kilogram dog, I still end up using 10 micrograms just because it's logistically easier. But when you do your ACTH simulation test, of course you get your pre-sample, which you may have already gotten with your baseline cortisol. And if you've already gotten a baseline cortisol, you do not need to do a pre-sample before the ACTH stimulation test. So get your pre-sample. Then we usually, what our techs do is they put in the um, butterfly catheter and then they pull out the pre-sample and then they give the cosentropin IV uh, after that. All right. And then an hour later, you get your post-sample. Now... When you talk about Cushing's, you can give the cosentropin IM. With Addison's, I strongly, strongly recommend giving it IV because these animals have probably aberrant absorption because they tend to be hypovolemic. So I would give it IV, use one microgram per kilogram of cosentropin and get the sample an hour later. Now, one thing I did want to mention is when we look at diagnosis, depending on what laboratory you use, sometimes they put reference ranges on there, meaning These are the cortisol ranges that a typical dog has. So if you're doing an ACTH stimulation test and you're doing it on 100 dogs, then I can't remember what they usually say for the reference range, but some of them run, maybe the post stem is like seven to 12 or something, microgram per deciliter. But in order to diagnose Addison's at this point, unless your lab gives you a different number because they have a different assay, I generally say, A dog is not Addisonian unless their post-stimulation cortisol concentration is less than two micrograms per deciliter. And the reason I say that is because of those reference ranges. Some people say, oh, well, the reference range is 7 to 15 or whatever. If it's less than 7, then the dog has Addison's. That's not right. I mean, if it's less than 7, it's not completely normal, but it's not in the Addisonian range. I've had one dog that had a baseline cortisol of, say, 2.3-ish that I stemmed and it stemmed to 1.9. So I would give you a little fuzziness in the two to 2.5 range, but a dog with a post-stem cortisol of five does not have Addison's in my mind. And there have been studies that looked at dogs like that and they found out the dogs end up not having Addison's in the long run. That's how you end up diagnosing. Oh, the other thing to say is steroids. There are a couple reasons that steroids that we give to dogs can interfere with the ACTH stimulation test. The first one is that the steroid is actually picked up as cortisol by the assay. So if you give something like prednisone within 24 hours, and then you run the cortisol assay, some of that prednisone is interpreted as cortisol, and it can give you a falsely high value. Prednisone, methylprednisolone, those do that. But dexamethadone does not cross-react with cortisol assay. So if you get that dog in on a Saturday night and you think it has Addison's, but you can't do a stem till Monday because you don't have cosintropin or whatever, then you can give it a couple of doses of dexamethasone over the weekend and that won't cross-react with the assay. Now, if you've had a dog on steroids within the last month prior to doing the ACTH stimulation test, because those steroids will inhibit ACTH release from the pituitary, which will then cause a little bit of adrenal cortical atrophy, your ACTH stem won't be as high as a result of that. Now, generally, a few doses of steroids isn't going to cause such atrophy that the post stim cortisol is within the Addisonian range, but a lot of times it will be in the three to five range where it makes you go, oh, are they borderline Addisonian, which I just told you that doesn't really exist but it'll certainly cause it to be low. Now there's the other side where a dog's been on steroids for six months and then you stop it. Then yes, they can go absolutely Addisonian from that, but not from a few days.
0: Sure. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the dexamethasone because I remember that being one thing that was taught to us about Addisonian crisis is they said, give dexamethasone, get something on board for these guys.
1: Absolutely. And you know, some people don't have dexamethasone in their clinics and I understand that. So If it's a Saturday night and you're in a clinic where you have prednisone and not dexamethasone, we think probably 24 hours is a good time to wait between pred dose and checking cortisol, especially if you've only given it once. So, I mean, don't let the dog die without steroids because you need to do the test, obviously, but you need to wait some time. Sure.
0: Absolutely. And I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but that kind of goes along the lines of monitoring these guys because they're, you know, once we diagnose them, they're going to be on chronic prednisone. But we're not ever looking for that ACTH stim again once we get that
1: diagnosis, right? Absolutely, that is a really great point because I've seen people recheck ACTH stems later on, and I'm like, you know, once you diagnose a naturally occurring Addisonian, they're Addisonian for life. So there's no need to ever recheck an ACTH stimulation test again. That's different than when you're regulating a dog with Cushing's and they're on trilostane, but. Once a dog is Addisonian and you've proven it, you don't ever need to do an ACTH stimulation test. Again, you're going to be monitoring those patients based on looking at clinical signs associated with cortisol deficiency to decide how much PRED to give. And then you're going to look at electrolyte concentrations to decide how often and how much DOCP to give.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's get into the fun stuff. Let's talk about treatment. There's a lot of factors to keep in mind when we're treating Addison's for all the reasons that we just talked about, all the varieties of different presentations and ranges of severity. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the treatment for Addison's, both in, in crisis mode and then also kind of the more chronic management?
1: Sure. I mean, obviously, I could spend hours talking about both of these. Because I love, <laughs> and I topics. could sit
0: here and listen to it.
1: I would love to. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you kind of a brief rundown. The one thing that is most necessary when we're treating an Addisonian crisis, where the dog comes in in hypovolemic shock, the potassium's high, the sodium may or may not be low, and maybe they're azotemic is getting fluids into those dogs. I mean, we've got to give them lots of fluids. Number one, the fluids are going to replace the volume deficit. So you're going to use the fluids to get rid of the hypovolemic shock. The other thing is those fluids are going to help drive down to the potassium. So I'm not talking about weenie five mil per kig fluid boluses. I, I start out giving these guys 20 mils per kig. And, you know, fluids alone go a long way at treating these Addisonian crises. Of course, we're going to be using some other supportive therapies. If they're vomiting, diarrhea, of course, you're going to give them an anti-emetic like Serenia, maybe some GI protectants like Pantoprazole or Omeprazole if you don't have IV Pantoprazole. We'll be giving the supportive therapy, but fluids are really the most important part. Now, most of the time when these cogs come in, their potassium is not over, say, eight and a half or nine, and fluids alone are enough to treat that hyperkalemia. On the other hand, if the potassium is really high, say above eight and a half or nine, and/or the animal's super bradycardic, bradycardic due to hyperkalemia, or they're missing a P wave on ECG, or the T wave is really aberrant and tall, um, tented, then you might want to think about doing some more direct interventions. Again, fluids are usually enough to get the potassium down, but if you see these abnormalities, what I generally start with first especially if I think the animal's about to check out on me and die, is I use calcium gluconate. Calcium gluconate is not going to get the potassium down. It's going to keep the heart from quitting on you while you're giving the IV fluids and anything else time to kick in. So if we're giving calcium gluconate, of course, we're giving it IV. You know, I remember the dose I learned first ever was 2 to 10 mils per animal. So IV slowly over... Ten to fifteen minutes. The funny thing is that the number one side effect of giving calcium gluconate is bradycardia, which when you've got an Addisonian, that's probably what you're kind of treating. So we generally have an ECG hooked up. I haven't run into side effects, and generally, I feel that the benefit is more than the risk. Anyway, two to ten mils per animal, which means if you have a block cat, it's two mils. If you have a big dog, a standard poodle, it's ten mils. The other dose that I remember is a mil per kg. So. Whichever one you want to use, getting that into the dog, giving it slowly over a 15-minute period will will help keep the heart from going into V-fib or stopping on you. Other things that you can do in these animals, oh, I forgot to mention that some of these dogs that come in on chemistry, they're hypoglycemic. We've certainly seen typical and atypical Addisonians present for hypoglycemic seizures. So certainly if they're hypoglycemic, you want to give them dextrose. The cool thing is dextrose also helps treat the hyperkalemia. So if they're significantly hyperkalemic, give them a dextrose bolus, one mil per kg. You know, there's not, I don't feel like there's actually a universally accepted dextrose dose that's best or universally accepted dilution of it. I usually dilute it one-to-one. One.
0: That's exactly what I was taught was a mil per kg diluted one-to-one one and give an IV.
1: I did that, but then I wrote a paper and whoever my reviewer was, was adamant that it had to be one to three. And I was like, okay, okay whatever, that's fine. Okay. Just give that's us some dextrose. Just uh, whatever it you want to do. But generally, if the animal's dying, I think one-to-one's faster Sure, <laughs> and we'll deal with the lack of vessel later on. So giving that dextrose is going to help. And if the animal is really like sitting there, you're afraid the animal's going to check out on you. I don't like to jump on the insulin train immediately, but if I think they're about to die, I will. So what giving dextrose is going to do is it's going to cause endogenous insulin release. And that insulin is then going to drive the dextrose and the potassium intracellularly. The thing is, that's going to take you some time to take effect. I want to say at least 15, 30 minutes in there, sometime in there while you know the fluids are diluting as well. But if you have an animal that's about to check out, you can give insulin, which will almost immediately drive the potassium into the cell, Generally, do it at a dose of 0.2 unit per kilogram IV regular insulin. Cute little thing here is if you happen to have glargine insulin in the hospital and not regular insulin, if you give glargine IV, it has the same effect pharmacologically as regular insulin. So huh. you could use that. So if you give insulin IV, of course you've got to follow it up with de- actually I'd give a dextrose bolus first, then the insulin, and then any more boluses they need, then you have to keep watching their glucoses over time. So that's one of the reasons I don't jump to it. It can cause hypoglycemia and you've got to be careful about watching it. But that's what you do if they're getting ready to die on you. Give them lots of fluids and then deal with the hyperkalemia. The hyperkalemia and the hypovolemia is what's going to kill the animal. Notice that nowhere in there, when I talked about the animal about to die, did I mention giving dexamethasone. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't give dexamethasone if the dog's reading the book and I think they're Addisonian, I will absolutely give dexamethasone in there, but I'm going to spend my time initially getting the IV fluids into the animal, making sure that the dog doesn't die from hyperkalemia before I go grab a little bit of dexamethasone. But once you're, you've got everything else rolling, if you really think they've got Addison's, then the dose of dexamethasone I usually use in the acute phase, the first injection is about 0.25 milligram per kilogram IV which is about equivalent to two mg per kg of prednisone. And I've heard much, much higher doses than that. I think it'd be reasonable to give them up to half a milligram per kilogram of dexamethasone IV, but you don't need any more than that. Remember that if you're giving a dog two mg per kg of dexamethasone, that's equivalent to like 15 mg per kg of prednisone, which is an astronomically high number. So, and then of course, after you get them through the initial crisis, you're going to do supportive therapy, giving them fluids, GI protectants and such. The other thing I want to mention, if these animals have really, really low sodiums, like below eh, 120, you need to make sure that you don't increase the sodium by more than 12 milliequivalents over a 24-hour period, which we can talk about different fluids and such at another time. But I generally, if I've got one with really low sodium, I'm going to put them on lactated ringers because it only has a sodium concentration of 130. But I know a lot of vets don't have all the different fluids out in practice. So uh, that's the quick and dirty acute management of these guys. For chronic management, in my mind, it's kind of straightforward. Of course, I live and breathe Addison. So you got to think about what the Addisonian is missing. Every Addisonian that has electrolyte abnormalities is missing a mineralocorticoid, which I typically replace with DOCP, or pivolate, which is otherwise known by the trade names of zychortyl by DECRA, and percortin by Alanco, I believe now. So that's the my corticoid of choice. And then you also need to replace the cortisol deficits. Just because it's easily available in a lot of different pill sizes, I typically use prednisone or prednisolone. And I use them interchangeably depending on which pill size the dog needs. Sometimes one of them's available in the right size and the other one isn't. When you give a dose of DOCP, Typically, even though the label says 2.2 MIG per KIG, I usually start at 1.5 MIG per KIG. And that's, there's actually now some literature to support that. But if you are using less than the label dose, you should absolutely write, you know, get client consent and write it down. But the reason we use lower than the label dose, the primary reason is finances, because this is the most expensive part of treatment. The other part of it is that at higher doses, sometimes the potassium is lower. So we'll start at 1.5 mig per kig. The first dose I usually give IM, but the vast majority of patients do great long-term with sub-Q DOCP. Once I get the dose to a consistent dosage and dosing interval, I allow the owners to give it at home if they prefer, because it's just easier for them and for the animal. And if they can give a sub-Q, that's even better. So after I give the first dose, I will have the patient come back within 10 to 14 days. Sometimes I'm rechecking them earlier anyway, if they came in an crisis, and I need to make sure they're not anemic or something. But you definitely want to check the electrolytes at 10 to 14 days. And then again, right before you give the next injection. The label generally says 25 days. I do it somewhere between 25 and 28 days the first time, depending on where we are. So it's kind of confusing. When you check the electrolytes the first time, You're using that information to tell you whether you gave enough or you gave too much, and you're not going to do anything about that at the 10 to 14 day point when you're checking the electrolytes. You're going to use that information to tell you how much to give when they come back at the 25 to 28 day mark. So if the electrolytes are completely normal at 14 days, then you can give exactly the same injection dose next time. If the potassium is still a titch high, then maybe you want to increase the dose a little bit. And in younger animals, that may be the case. So there was one study where the two-year-old dogs, I believe, were requiring maybe 1.7 mg per kg. But I'll be honest, most recently, more often than not, the abnormalities I'll see at the 14 day period is the potassium being a little low. So the potassium is a little low, that gives you permission and you need to decrease those next time. And I'll decrease it by 10 to 20%. So maybe go from 1.5 down to 1.3-ish or 1.2 mg per kg. So that's what we're doing at the 10 to 14 day recheck is using the electrolytes to determine the next dose you give. Now, when they come back for the 25 to 28 day recheck, that's going to be you're going to check electrolytes before you give the DOCP. And then that's going to tell you whether the interval is appropriate. So lots of dogs actually could have a longer dosing interval than 28 days. But because I use a lower dose, I tend to stick with about 28 to 31 days long term. But if they come in at 28 days and the potassium was normal at 14 days, but now the potassium is a little high, that means you need to give it maybe three days sooner the next time. So if this time you did it 28 days and the potassium was high, then next time have them come back in 25 days and so on like that. So you're using the electrolytes that you check right before the next injection to tell you whether the dosing interval is right. And you're using the 14 day electrolytes to tell you whether you got the dose right or not. And then prednisone is a super important thing to discuss. I think we talk a lot about dosing with DOCP, but a lot of people have questions about how to taper the prednisone long-term. So let's keep in mind, as Cassie said earlier, or we discussed earlier, is that you don't need to ever check a ACTH stimulation test again once you diagnose them with Addison's. The way we're going to determine what prednisone dose they need is based on the clinical signs the animal has and the side effects from prednisone. So typically when I send a dog home after Addisonian crisis, I put them on about half a mig per kg of prednisone per day. Now, if the animal is a giant dog, I'll probably use less than that just because big dogs have more side effects from prednisone, but I'll send them home on that dose. And then I tell them probably at a wait period, give me a call, but the dog's probably gonna be super, super PUPD, but clinically doing well. Then I drop them down to 0.25 mig per kig, And then I'm gonna have them come back in a you know at the 14 day when they're coming in for a recheck. And if they're doing great then and they're on 0.25 mig per kig, I'm probably gonna drop it in half again. And I keep dropping the dose in half until I get to the point where the dog is no longer having side effects from the prednisone But the dog's clinical signs of Addison's are controlled. Now, in chapters, we have written that the physiologic dose of prednisone is 0.1 to 0.25 mg per kg, and I'm guilty of writing that in there as well. And we put that in there as a guideline But what I will say is I have never had a dog with only Addison's that required more than 0.25 mg per kg of pred per day. If it does, then I'd be worried more about something like IBD on top of it. But at the same time, I've had plenty of dogs that require less than 0.1 mg per kg per day. I had one dog, a a golden retriever, who I ended up having on 0.03 mg per kg of pred per day, because even though he was doing okay initially when we got him down to 0. 06 mg per kg per day of pred. The six-month recheck, we noticed that he had a lot of epaxial muscle wasting. So because of that, we decreased his prednisone dose down to 0.03 mg per kg. And that dog lived on his DOCP and prednisone for like 10 years and he did great. He ended up, he was a golden retriever. So you can guess what he died from. He ended up dying from some sort of mouth cancer, some, a tumor in his mouth and also from lymphoma when he was 12 years old. But Aww. of course he'd already been treated with prednisone. Right. So right. that may have affected, uh, that would have probably affected his response to chemotherapy, but in any case, I think the important things are to remember that you can often go down lower than 0.1 mg per kg of pred, and it's going to be completely based on clinical signs uh, that the owners are telling you. The other thing is when the dogs get stressed, or if you're anticipating stress, whether they're coming to the vet to get electrolytes checked, or they're going to the dog park or whatever else, double their steroid dose that day.
0: I love it. I've been sitting here like writing notes as you're talking, because I love like the kind of algorithmic, like, here's how you do it. Just follow the rules. And I'm glad that you mentioned them being able to tolerate 0.1 meg per kg per day or less, because I've certainly fallen into the camp of like, no, it says 0.25 mg per kg per day. That's how low we're supposed to go. And we should keep them there. So I love kind of putting that out there to the universe that we may be able to still go even lower than that.
1: Absolutely. We've had some dogs referred in before because they had signs of Cushing's because the vet was giving 0.1 mg per kg because those of us writing chapters, myself included, put that in there without clarifying a whole lot. So I think there are a lot of people doing that. And I think dogs do so much, a lot of them do so much better at lower doses.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the the 0.25, it always seemed like kind of a high dose to keep them on. But yeah, it was kind of, like you said, this is what the book says, this is what we're supposed to do. So yes, hopefully that will help a lot of dogs out there of getting their doses a little bit lower on the prednisone. The other
1: thing about that is an important for people to know that they don't actually have to see the dog when they're tapering the pred. If the owners call and say, Hey, this dog is peeing all over the place, but he's eating and drinking and everything. Great. You can half that over the phone because you okay. already know what's going on. So you can even have tech callbacks to check on the pred dose to adjust that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So convenient for the client, we can still do the best thing for the patient. Once we do get them regulated, I know we have to do some long-term monitoring. So what kind of intervals do you recommend for the long-term monitoring of these patients?
1: That's a really great question. So after I've checked the electrolytes and gotten the dose down to exactly where I want it, I know the potassium's normal and such. You don't need to recheck electrolytes, but maybe maybe after the initial time at three months, but then after that, maybe every six months or so. And again, that's a good question because I've also seen people who before every DOCP injection, they checked electrolytes and those poor owners are spending the money uh-huh. on electrolyte checks. So maybe after you get them regulated initially at three months, then every six months thereafter.
0: Perfect. Perfect. And, you know, just to kind of, kind of wrap up here at the end, I mean, generally when we find Addison's, it's an exciting diagnosis to make because they're, they're not really common, but it's very treatable. It has a good prognosis. Unfortunately, we still, despite all of that, lose some patients to Addison's disease. So can you talk about some of the reasons why a dog might die from Addison's disease?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest reason, at least it used to be the biggest reason dogs would die from Addison's is because somebody's not looking for it. It may either be that the vet just happens to not be aware of it, or it may be in a typical Addisonian. And they don't see the typical potassium and sodium changes, so they're not looking for it. However, a lot of those dogs do end up getting steroids for suspected IBD or something, so that helps them. But it could be the vet's not looking for it, or the vet wasn't thinking about it, and they still have the machines that they do a chemistry on one machine and electrolytes on the other machine, so they didn't check electrolytes. We had a recent dog who came in through neuro. the dog had had a neck problem that they fixed, it was an IVDD, they fixed like in December. And then the dog came back in in February for trembling, which of course, understandably, the referring thought was another disc. So she ran a chemistry, sent the dog in, dog came in on a Sunday night. Of course, we were trying not to spend extra money. So we're like, all right, we'll check the blood again tomorrow. And they checked it. And certainly it was hyperkalemic and hyponatremic, but The reason the vet missed it, which I can't blame her at all, is that she didn't run electrolytes because Addison's was nowhere on the list. It was the weirdest case. But so not looking for it and not checking electrolytes are big reasons animals could die from Addison's. The other thing is owner compliance slash ability to afford the DOCP One thing owners love to do, and maybe the internet's helping with this because they go on the uh, sites where they say, no, don't skip your DOCP dose. Don't skip it. You're trying to save money, but then you're going to have a $2,000 crisis on your hands again. So for financial reasons, they try to skip it or they just can't afford it overall. And the things that we do with that, I talked about, you know, we start at 1.5 mg per kg of DOCP. We decrease it based on potassium concentrations. Honestly, if I've got a big dog and their electrolytes are completely normal on 1.5 mg per kg, and those owners are really trying to get the cost down, I'll decrease it by 10 to 20% each injection, but then you have to check electrolytes the next time to make sure we're doing okay. So I'm happy to get it down to the lowest effective dose, which, can especially in big dogs potentially be a mig per keg or a little bit less but you've got to check electrolytes during that and electrolytes cost money so it's not really worth it to do that with a yorkie or a chihuahua but with sure. a great gain it certainly is
0: absolutely absolutely anything we can do to get these guys treated because once they're treated they do really well
1: they're so happy absolutely. the owners are so happy
0: well, I like in my head, I'm going back to what we were talking about fluids. I'm like, okay, let's dive into all the different kinds of fluids. Cause I would love to sit here for another hour and talk about Addison's disease and all the different things, but big take home message that I think we all need a reminder of periodically is to keep it on our differential list and be on the lookout for it. And this has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty, for joining us. I've, I've had a ball talking about all of this.
1: Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to be here. It's been fun. And hopefully we can save some more dogs out there.
0: All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you find it as useful as I did, although I also hope that an Addisonian with a foreign body does not show up in your lobby tomorrow. But I want to say a big thank you to Dekra. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. Lathan for all of the fantastic information. Thank you to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, including Addisonians with foreign bodies, it's a great day.